yeah, the abortion myth is is the term I used to uh, to to describe what what uh, what's happening here. Um, the religious right emerges in the late 1970s, <clears throat> and 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 the reason I I, I emphasize that is that. Uh, the myth or the abortion myth is that evangelicals began to mobilize politically in direct response to the Roe v. Wade decision of January 22nd, 1973. And according to this narrative, you know, they, they suddenly kind of woke up to uh, the fact that American society was secularizing around them at a, at a, a torrid pace. And unless they, they uh, rose up to uh, stanch this moral decay, as suggested by the Roe v. Wade decision, that America would be lost forever or something like that. Well, it's it's a great story, and it's been repeated hundreds, probably thousands, hundreds of thousands of times by the leaders of the religious right. And I've spent you know, more years than I care to count trying to track down this uh, this real narrative, what really happened. And I can tell you without any uh, any sort of um, uh, equivocation that this is just fantasy. It's fiction. Welcome to season one of the Big Green Discoveries. In this episode, I want to talk about an origin story. This story challenges the cultural myth about religion and politics in America. At the center of it is evangelicalism. A conservative presidential candidate with a firm stance on abortion is more likely to be backed by Christians, something that most of us have probably heard at some point in our lives. And in 2016, about 80% of white evangelicals voted for President Trump. So here's a question for you. What do we make of the 20% of white evangelicals who didn't vote for him? What was their reason? a three-part definition to, to understand who's uh, an evangelical. An evangelical is somebody, first of all, who takes the Bible very seriously as God's revelation to humanity. This is Dr. Randall Balmer. He teaches American religious history at Dartmouth College. He's also an evangelical minister and has written countless books on the subject matter. And so, and this comes from the Protestant Reformation, actually. And uh, Martin Luther talked about uh, the source of authority being the Bible alone, or what he called sola scriptura, the scriptures alone. <clears throat> and so, evangelicals uh, view the Bible as uh, very uh, as sacred, as God's revelation. And for that reason, they want to interpret it literally. Although I often add that they engage in what I call the ruse of selective literalism, because <laughs> uh, some parts of the Bible they read literally, others uh, they don't. Uh, the second, on the basis of that, is the centrality of a conversion or a born-again experience. And that term comes from the third chapter of St. John in the, in the New Testament, when, when uh, Nicodemus, a, a Jewish leader, visits Jesus by night and asks Jesus how he, Nicodemus, can enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus, or I'm sorry, Jesus replies that you must be born again or born from above in some translations of that, uh, of that uh, verse. And so that's where uh, uh, evangelicals get this idea of a conversion experience. And this very often uh, for most, it would be a datable experience. Uh, an evangelical would be able to say, I was converted, I was saved, I was born again. Those are all synonymous terms on 
July 16th through July 17th, uh, 1982. I was in the hospital about to go in for surgery, and I gave my heart to Jesus, where I became born again or saved. And the third characteristic uh, after the Bible and after the centrality of conversion is a, an impulse to evangelize or to bring others into the, the faith. And so, uh, again, this is a response to so-called Great Commission in the New Testament, <clears throat> when Jesus enjoins his followers to go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, again, on that third one, uh, it's been my observation over the last, you know, 50 plus years that uh, evangelicals will always acknowledge that that's one of their duties as a believer, but more and more they hire professionals to do it for them, uh, missionaries, or they would have uh, on, in mega churches, you've got a visitation pastor or an outreach minister or something like that. But those would be the three criteria. Again, uh, the Bible is God's revelation to humanity, the centrality of conversion, and finally the uh, impulse to bring others into the faith. The word itself, evangelical, refers to the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These four are the evangelists, and to evangelize is to bring about the gospel or the good news of salvation. Evangelicalism should not be confused with Catholicism. They are similar but different in various ways, and a German monk from the 16th century is responsible for that. His name was Martin Luther, and he claimed that he had rediscovered the gospel. Luther found something that supposedly others are not paying attention to. So he challenged the Catholic Church on the basis of theology, and the outcome was the Reformation, or simply put, the birth of Protestantism and its separation from the Catholic Church. There are several Protestant denominations, and evangelicalism is one of them. When I spoke to Dr. Baller, he mentioned that to this day, evangelical churches in Germany are called Evangelische, which is the German word for Protestant. The movement spread around Europe and ultimately reached America. But at what point in American history did evangelicals become interested in politics? And I think what happens in North America is that uh, several strands of Protestantism came together in this uh, series of revivals <clears throat> along the Atlantic seaboard in the middle of, of the 18th century called the, the, the historians call the Great Awakening. And this brought together what I call the three P's, that is uh, the vestiges of New England Puritanism, Scots-Irish Presbyterianism, and finally Continental Pietism. And those three strands came together in this you know, remarkable uh, revival that swept through the Atlantic colonies. And I think it's still possible today to see the remnants of each of those P's within contemporary evangelicalism. That is to say, from the Puritans, evangelicals uh, uh, took the importance of uh, an introspective piety. The Puritans were always kind of asking all these questions. Am I holy enough? Am I godly enough? Have I prayed enough? And they, and they were keeping these journals to kind of chart their uh, spiritual uh, growth and progress. Uh, from the Presbyterians, I think evangelicals inherit the importance of doctrinal uh, precisionism, that is to hold the right beliefs. Uh, and I can tell you that uh, within the evangelical world, seminary jobs are won and lost or just the tiniest little deviation from any what is considered by that institution to be the accepted uh, uh, theology or doctrine. And then finally, from the, uh, from the pietists, evangelicals have 
uh, a sense of the importance of kind of a warm-hearted, affective piety. It's not, not enough merely to, to hold certain beliefs. You have to have a, a kind of uh, um, emotional attachment or a, um, an affective response to, to, um, uh, to the faith. I see. So how did the Second Great Awakening essentially affect their, social, their uh, mission in terms of social reforms? The Second Great Awakening is, is crucial for understanding uh, evangelicalism. And the Second Great Awakening uh, took place in the decades uh, straddling the turn of the 19th century, roughly from the 1790s into the 1840s. Again, you can quibble with dates, but that's roughly the, the time it took place. And the Second Great Awakening was really a remarkable uh, moment because you had uh, uh, an, a revival in three different theaters of the new nation. Let's remember this is right after the, the Declaration of Independence and, and, uh, and the formation of the new nation. And uh, the first outbreak uh, really emanated from Yale College in New Haven. Uh, there was a, a revival among the students there at Yale. And as those students began to fan out across New England, and uh, become pastor of, of local uh, congregations, then they, they brought that revival fervor with them. The second theater of the, new, of the uh, Second Great Awakening was in the Cumberland Valley of Kentucky. This is the era of the camp meetings. Uh, very enthusiastic, very emotional. Uh, people would gather uh, out in the frontier for a week or 10 days of preaching and singing and, and conversions, uh, although critics claim that there are more souls conceived than who were converted at these camp <laughs> meetings. It was nevertheless a, a, quite a, a remarkable uh, event. And then the third theater of that Second Great Awakening took place in upstate New York in a place uh, in a region of New York called the Burned Over District because the fires of revival had swept through so frequently from in that area. And it, it's really that phase of the Second Great Awakening that stamped evangelicalism as a uh, reform movement. And so coming out of that Second Great Awakening, you had uh, all of these efforts to improve society uh, and, and, and to reform society according to the norms of godliness. So you had the temperance movement. And you, we think of the temperance movement today as being you know, paternalistic and, and uh, uh, overweening. But alcohol consumption was a real, real problem in the uh, early years of the 19th century, along with the uh, attendant uh, abuses of uh, uh, spousal abuse, child abuse, and so forth. And so these evangelicals said, no, we have to do something about that. Um, prison reform, the whole idea of uh, penitentiary comes out of this the idea of, of granting voting rights for women was considered a radical notion in the 19th century. And, but evangelicals were leaders uh, in, that, in that movement. Um, a critique of capitalism was coming out of the Second Great Awakening. Uh, Charles Grandison Finney, by any measure, the most important evangelical of the 19th century, uh, was, was uh, excoriating capitalism uh, on a regular basis. Peace crusades, uh, the idea of, uh, of uh, <clears throat> reconciling differences for in some way other than, uh, than battle or military uh, conflict comes out of that movement as well. 
And then uh, I, I've even run across an instance of gun control uh, uh, movement in the 19th century led by evangelicals. And the whole idea was to make the world a better place, uh, to reform society according to the norms of godliness. And this is, the, I, I think, the real legacy of evangelical political activism uh, in, in uh, coming out of the Second Great Awakening. What Dr. Balmer describes here is essentially a set of values that today would be considered liberal. When most people are asked to consider why white evangelicals voted for Trump, the typical answer is abortion. Theoretically, what is now known as the religious right, a group of Christians with conservative views, began in the late 1970s because evangelicals weren't happy with the ruling of Roe v. Wade. This ruling allowed pregnant women the constitutional right to have an abortion. And although Roe v. Wade plays a huge role in the evangelical vote today, that is not the true origin of the religious right. What truly happened begins with another legal case. In 1925, John Scopes taught biology at a high school in Tennessee. Earlier that year, the state had made it illegal to teach evolution. Fundamentalist Christians fought relentlessly to keep evolutionary ideas, and the modernists were promoted at the margins of society. If schools taught evolution as a true history of the world, then what would become the Christian creation story? A myth, perhaps? It's a possibility evangelicals weren't ready to entertain, but John Scopes didn't care about that. He liked evolution, so he taught it anyway. Later that year, John Scopes was charged for teaching evolutionary biology. At his trials, he was represented by Clarence Darrow, a remarkable lawyer and a fellow modernist. The opposing attorney was William Jennings Bryan, a fundamentalist Christian. Darrow argued for the necessity of evolution, citing its relevance in the classroom and the future of science. Bryan fired back at those comments highlighting the importance of the Bible and the dangers of teaching evolution in the classroom. The following is an excerpt of Brian's closing statement. He had written the statement, but unfortunately died in his sleep before he could read it to the jury. Science is a magnificent force, but it is not a teacher of morals. In war, science has proven itself an evil genius. It has made war more terrible than ever before. Again, force and love meet face to face in the question, what shall I do with Jesus, must be answered. A bloody, brutal doctrine evolution demands, as the rabble did 1900 years ago, that he be crucified. That cannot be the answer of this jury representing a Christian state and sworn to uphold the laws of Tennessee. Your answer will be heard throughout the world. It is eagerly awaited by a praying multitude. If the law is nullified, there will be rejoiced wherever God is repudiated. Every unbeliever of every kind and degree will be happy. If, on the other hand, the law is upheld, the religion of the school children protected, millions of Christians will call you blessed, with hearts full of gratitude to God, will sing again that grand old song of triumph. The case lasted several days, after which the jury sided with Brian. Evolution was banned from public schools. Evangelicals got what they wanted, but that wasn't enough. Yeah, and at some point, there was a retreat from the evangelicals, from society in a sense. And do you think the Scopes trial marks uh, some kind of uh, artificial tipping point for them? It does. Yeah, the Scopes trial is important, at least simple, symbolically. But even before that, uh, what happens is that <clears throat> uh, coming out of the Second Great Awakening, evangelicals were convinced that they were constructing a godly society. And then what happens in the 19th century, as the 19th century moves on, is that they begin to have some doubts about this because society is not reforming uh, itself in ways that they think that it should. And I think it begins with the Civil War. You had these terrible, terrible um, uh, casualties in the Civil War. Historians now estimate uh, three quarters of a million Americans for casualties in, in the Civil War. I mean, that's just an just, uh, unthinkable number. I mean, just to give you some um, perspective, uh, uh, the Vietnam War, the, the American losses in the Vietnam War 
uh, were something over 58,000, which of course is terrible, but compare mm -hmm. that with 750,000. It's just yeah. an extraordinary number. And so I think evangelicals uh, began to look at the, uh, the battlefields of Gettysburg and Manassas and Antietam and said, wait a minute, we thought we were building a godly society here and look what's happening. This is just, this is just terrible destruction. And then later in the 19th century, of course, you had uh, massive urbanization in American society, uh, industrialization, the arrival of non-Protestant immigrants into the cities. And so by the 1890s, uh, evangelicals are looking around and they're saying, wait a minute, uh, we thought we were building this new heavenly city, this Zion. And uh, look at these teeming squalid sentiments on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. They don't look like Zion to us. And so they began to reconfigure their understanding. And they, uh, and I don't want to get into the weeds here, but <clears throat> they begin to adopt a new mode of biblical interpretation that says, no, we're not building the heavenly city that we thought we were building earlier in the 19th century. Instead, Jesus is going to come back at any moment and take us out of this mess that we have here on this earth. And only then will this heavenly kingdom be constructed. And this is something called a dispensationalism or dispensational premillennialism. I'm sorry to, uh, <laughs> to lay these terms on you. But it's, it's, uh, what it, essentially what it is, is, is a, it's a different way to read the Bible or interpret the Bible. That, and the conclusion of that is there's nothing we can do to make this world a better place. Uh, all we can do is just wait for God to come or Jesus to return and, and get us out of this mess. And so that turns evangelicals away from this whole agenda of social reform that had really distinguished their activities earlier in the 19th century. <clears throat> and so by the Scopes trial of 1925, they're beginning to, to turn inward. And the Scopes trial, I think, uh, as, as you suggested, was more symbolically than, than uh, elsewhere, uh, otherwise, but still it's a very powerful symbol because in the Scopes trial, of course, uh, William Jennings Bryan re representing <coughs> evangelicals uh, uh, really uh, uh, does not, does not uh, comport himself very well. And so uh, even though the Scopes trial got the verdict that evangelicals wanted, that is that John Scopes was convicted of violating the Butler Act, which forbade the teaching of evolution in public schools, um, evangelicals lost rather decisively in the larger um, courtroom of public opinion. And so what happens after 1975 is you have this uh, uh, massive turning inward mm -hmm. on the part of, uh, of evangelicals. Yeah, and I think it is fair to say that uh, Jimmy Carter's presidential run uh, changed everything for them because before that, they weren't really active politically. They just retreated. That's true. In the middle decades of the, you know, roughly 50 years, I mean, from 1925 to the mid-1970s when Carter begins to emerge as a serious political candidate, uh, evangelicals are not involved in politics. I mean, they, some of them vote, maybe, I, you know, I don't have no way of knowing what the percentage was, um, but many, and I remember this very clearly because I grew up in this world, many not, were, were not even registered to vote because, eh, you know, why bother? Jesus is coming uh, right. back any time. <clears throat> There's nothing we can do to make this world a better place. Why, why are we wasting our time uh, with politics?
And they are certainly not organized, uh, were not uh, active in any organized way in those middle decades of, of the 20th century. So Jimmy Carter comes along, a Southern Baptist Sunday school. He says, I'm born again Christian. He speaks the language of evangelicals. He promises never knowingly to lie to the American people. And coming out of Richard Nixon, you know, that was, that was a remarkable statement <laughs> at that time. Um, you know, we're probably living in similar days today, but that's a whole other, uh, other uh, circumstance. Um, and he, evangelicals suddenly take notice and say, this guy's one of us. Um, and he's being taken as seriously as a, uh, as a presidential candidate. Of course, he won the Democratic nomination. And uh, many evangelicals, not, not all, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, supported Jimmy Carter in 1976. And what's remarkable about Carter is that he was an evangelical of the stamp um, coming out of the Second Great Awakening. <clears throat> that is, he was very much concerned about those on the margins of society. And so uh, he was what I call a progressive evangelical. And uh, as you probably know, I, I wrote a biography of, of Jimmy Carter, and I asked him about that term, if he was comfortable with that term. And usually Southern Baptists don't like the term evangelical, even though they are, I mean, you know, you apply the duck test, you know, it's a, right. walks like a duck quack. <laughs> Um, but they still don't like that term. But he he uh, he said, yeah, he was he was fine with that term to to describe him and his his um, understanding of the faith. The book Dr. Ballmer is referencing is called Redeemer: The Life of Jimmy Carter. Dr. Ballmer has written another equally important book, God in the White House. I'd recommend it to anyone interested in the role that God has played in the presidencies of our nation and what that could potentially mean for the future. In 1966, President Jimmy Carter sought the Democratic nomination for governor in Georgia. He was known to be a proud evangelical and a stout advocate of equal rights for African Americans. That year, he lost the Democratic nomination for governor to a segregationist, a man who had the support of the Ku Klux Klan. And that was a bitter defeat. So President Carter ran for governor once more in 1970, and this time he won. In his book, Dr. Ballmer goes in great detail about what President Carter did as a governor of Georgia, from equalizing state funding for wealthy and not-so-wealthy schools, to appointing African-Americans to agencies dominated by white workers, and even calling for an end to segregation at his inaugural address. When Jimmy Carter ran as a Democratic nominee for president, he successfully did so, and he was backed by evangelicals. Why? Because he was one of their own, an evangelical, and this was a way to get their voices heard. But four years later, they turned on him. And the surprising thing about his presidency is that he it was only one term. After, uh, during the 1980 election, they completely backed away from him. And somebody was one of their own, as you said uh, before. This is the period in, in American history where I probably spent most of my time <laughs> doing <laughs> research and writing. It's fascinating to me that, that evangelicals who had helped elect Jimmy Carter in 1976 turned dramatically against one of their own to embrace Ronald Reagan, who, I mean, you know, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan has, had his virtues. I'm not suggesting he didn't, but uh, he was not an evangelical in the same way that, that Jimmy Carter was. Nevertheless, he was able to uh, win their votes in 1980. And uh, that's an election, I think, that's really a, a huge turning point. And this is an important time period because I think for most people, that's where we get our history wrong in terms of what shifted evangelicals to take more action in politics. And I think you've coined the term the abortion myth. 
And right. did you, can you please explain that? Sure. Yeah. The abortion myth is, is the term I used to, uh, to, to describe what, what, uh, what's happening here. Um, the religious right emerges in the late 1970s. <clears throat> and, and, and the reason I, I, I emphasize that is that uh, the myth or the abortion myth is that evangelicals began to mobilize politically in direct response to the Roe v. Wade decision of January 22nd, 1973. And according to this narrative, you know, they, they suddenly kind of woke up to uh, the fact that American society was secularizing around them at a at a, a torrid pace, and unless they they uh, rose up to uh, stanch this moral decay, as suggested by the Roe v. Wade decision, that America would be lost forever or something like that. Well, it's it's a great story, and it's been repeated hundreds, probably thousands hundreds of thousands of times by the leaders of the religious right. And I've spent you know, more years than I care to count trying to track down this, uh, this real narrative, what really happened. And I can tell you without any, uh, any sort of um, uh, equivocation that this is just fantasy. It's fiction. Um, just to, to give you some of the evidence here, um, <clears throat> In 1971, the Southern Baptist Convention, not exactly known as a redoubt of liberalism, passed a resolution at their meeting in St. Louis, Missouri, calling for the legalization of abortion. They reaffirmed that resolution again in, I'm sorry, reaffirmed that resolution in 1974, the year after Roe v. Wade, and again in 1976. Going back a bit further, uh, Christianity Today, the flagship magazine of evangelicalism, convened a conference with another evangelical organization called the uh, Christian Medical Society to discuss the morality surrounding abortion. They met, these are top flight theologians of evangelicalism, met over several days. At the end of their meeting, they issued a statement saying, yeah, we really don't know. Uh, if abortion is morally wrong, but we think it probably should be allowed. I mean, it was just a remarkable statement. Uh, Jerry Falwell, the you know, arguably the uh, certainly the most visible leader of the religious right going into the 1980 election, uh, by his own admission, did not preach his first anti-abortion sermon until February of 1978, more than five years after the Roe v. Wade ruling. So that's why I call it the abortion myth. The abortion myth is the fiction that the religious right started as a political movement in response to Roe v. Wade and the abortion issue. It's simply not not the case. So, you know, the next question, I'll anticipate it. (laughs) Yeah. What got them interested in politics? Exactly. In in, uh, political activism. And, uh, you know, again, I've done more, uh, spent more time researching this than uh, any sane person should be allowed to do. But uh, what got them interested in politics and mobilized in politics was a defense of tax-exempt status in racially segregated institutions, such as Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina. That's what got them organized as a political movement, had nothing whatsoever to do with abortion. Abortion comes later, 
And I'm happy to talk about that as well. But what got them mobilized as a political movement was a defense of their tax exempt status for Bob Jones University and other so-called segregation academies. Um, and by the way, um, Paul Weyrich, who's really the architect of the religious right, is now deceased, but I had uh, a substantive conversation with him about this. And he's, he was absolutely uh, emphatic about this point. It had nothing to do with abortion. What got them going was defending these uh, institutions. So that, I mean, that, you know, that places a very, very different sort of moral valence on the religious right and evangelical political activism, if you understand the real origins of this movement. Yeah, so at what point exactly does abortion come into the picture? Abortion comes into the picture uh, really just before the 1980 presidential election. What happens is, and this is part of uh, uh, Weyrich's Jesus, and I should probably say a little bit more about Paul Weyrich. Paul Weyrich was a a very kind of an arch conservative political organizer and activist. He's uh, one of the people who was uh, behind the formation of the the Heritage Foundation in uh, Washington, which was financed by the Coors Brewing family and so forth. Uh, and he, uh, and, you know, he told me this directly. He said, <clears throat> I'd been trying since the Goldwater campaign in 1964 to get evangelical voters mobilized because he thought that he could enlist them uh, behind very conservative uh, uh, political causes. And he said, I tried everything to get them going. I, I tried the, the uh, a school prayer issue, which was a large issue in American society uh, in the 1960s. He said, I tried the pornography issue. I tried abortion. I tried the uh, proposed equal rights amendment to the Constitution. Nothing got their interest until the IRS started to come after these segregated institutions. That's what finally got them uh, uh, mobilized. But the Weyrich's real genius, I think, and I sometimes call him an evil genius, um, Weyrich's real genius was to recognize that if he really wanted to mobilize grassroots evangelicals behind his, his agenda, he needed an issue other than a defense of racial segregation um, by the late 1970s. He needed something else. What happens is that in uh, advance of the 1978 midterm elections, Weirich goes to the head of the uh, Republican National Committee, uh, Bill Brock, a former senator from Tennessee. And he he says to Brock, he says, I I want some money to, to start organizing these evangelical voters. And according to Weirich, Brock looked at him and says, what are you talking about? Who are these people? I'm not going to give you this money. And so in response, Weirich uh, vowed to go out and elect some rather improbable people to the Senate in 1978 during the midterm elections. And he focuses on four Senate races, uh, one in New Hampshire, one in Iowa, and two in Minnesota. One of them is for the unexpired term of Hubert Humphrey, who who had died. And in all four of those races, Senate races, the Democrats were considered by pundits and by the polls to be um, odds-on favorites uh, in those races. And in the final weekend of that campaign, 1978, pro-lifers, Roman Catholics, because uh, opposition to abortion was a Catholic issue in the 1970s, 
leafleted church parking lots. And two days later, in, a in a, a, an election with a very low voter turnout, all four of those favored Democratic candidates lost to pro-life anti-abortion Republicans. And at that point, Weirich knew he had his issue. Abortion was going to work for him as a political issue. Uh, and he didn't have to uh, keep emphasizing uh, defense of racial, racially segregated institutions. And so uh, even then, it took a while for that to kind of uh, cycle into the evangelical psyche. And it's not until the late, uh, late in the 1980 campaign that abortion becomes uh, an issue for evangelicals. I'll give you one more example of that. Um, in, uh, on August 22nd of that year, um, Reagan uh, addresses a huge gathering of evangelical voters in uh, Dallas at uh, Reunion Arena. Uh, somewhere between 10 and 15, some estimates have it as high as 20,000 evangelicals are at this huge gathering. And Reagan, in that speech, he talks about creationism. Uh, he rails against the IRS for trying to you know, rescind the tax exemption of these racially segregated institutions. Uh, he says that if he were, he said that if he were on a desert island, the one book he would want with him is the Bible. And he did not mention abortion once in that rally before as many as 20,000 evangelicals. So even that late in the campaign, uh, abortion was not really working uh, um, to motivate evangelical voters. In the making of this episode, I reached out to several evangelical pastors to get their insight. There's one pastor that stood out to me. They allowed me to interview them, but in the end, they weren't comfortable with their voice being used on a podcast. This was a pastor of color, and I asked them several questions about their religious beliefs. One of those questions was about the LGBTQ community and whether or not their church was open to them. This pastor said, and I quote, I'm not here to judge. We leave that up to the Lord. My church doors are open to everyone. They deserve to hear the word of God as much as anyone else. What they do with it is entirely up to them. This pastor told me they received a lot of backlash from his comments. So I didn't ask them about their political beliefs. And they said something interesting. These pastors said they voted for Jimmy Carter twice, both elections. I asked if they liked Trump and they said, and I quote, I don't like the way he comports himself, especially the way he speaks to women, but I still voted for him because he shares many of my values. Now, I'm not going to give you a lot of details because I don't want to identify this person, but that conversation surprised me. This is a person of color who voted for Jimmy Carter twice, before and after Roe v. Wade, yet they voted for Trump in 2016 and 2020. So what is the deal with Trump? What makes him so likable to the evangelical community in general? Yeah, I, I've been trying to figure that one out <laughs> as well for, for at least four years. Um, my best ex explanation, and I'm not sure it's entirely right, but my best explanation is really three, three points. First, I think uh, the reason for 81% of white evangelicals, and that's important to say white evangelicals in this case, yeah. uh, voting for Trump had to do with their long-standing um, uh, animus toward Hillary Clinton. <clears throat> I think a lot of evangelicals just couldn't imagine themselves casting the, the ballot or you know, um, depressing the lever for Hillary Clinton. I think the second reason is that uh, evangelicals have responded very, very well to the rhetoric of victimization. Uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, particularly with the religious right. Um, the religious right, the leaders of the religious right have been very, very good at this. You know, oh, it's our values that are under attack. Uh, we're the ones who are the minorities. We're the ones who are, are being oppressed in the society. And nobody speaks the language of victimization better than Donald Trump. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, it's always about him. But I think they, there's at some level, they, uh, that rhetoric resonated with them and uh, kind of at least inclined them in his direction. And I think the third reason behind um, the 81% of white evangelicals voting for Donald Trump does have to do with racism. And again, I have to say that I, I, I came to this conclusion reluctantly because I've, I've always wanted to defend evangelicals against that charge, uh, in part because a lot of megachurches, for example, are at least reasonably uh, integrated racially. But nevertheless, I, I think what happened in, in, in 2016 is that it allowed the religious right finally to give up the pretense that this was a movement about family values. I mean, you, you simply can't make that case <laughs> and vote for Donald Trump, right? Three times married, twice divorced, you know, all of these uh, affairs and, you know, in the, don't get me started. I mean, he's not the family values candidate. You just can't make mm-hmm. that case. So I think the 2016 election saw the religious right finally circling back to the charter issue behind its formation, which was racial segregation, racism, to put it in the, in the starkest terms. And um, it, it's, it, it's a sad, it's a sad day. Uh, actually, I just, just finished a, a, a book on this topic, actually, the, the rise of the religious right. And one of the things that was very helpful to me is a book that just was published just a, a month or two ago called Reconsidering Reagan. Uh, now, I knew about Reagan, you know, Reagan in 1980. You know, we don't think of Reagan as a racist, but this book makes a pretty, pretty powerful case that he, he was. Um, you know, I knew, of course, that uh, he had opened his general election campaign in 1980 in, of all places, Philadelphia, Mississippi, the place where 16 years earlier, members of the Ku Klux Klan, in collusion with the local sheriff's office, had abducted and killed three civil rights uh, workers in, in uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi. And Reagan chooses, of all places, to open his general election campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, speaking to the Neshoba County Fair. And he, what does he say during that time? I mean, he could have used that occasion to set aside permanently any thoughts that, that he was conducting a, a campaign based on race. But what does he say? I believe in states' rights, which, of course, is the uh, you know one of the racist racist uh, dog whistles going back to to George Wallace, at least to George Wallace and, and other segregationists uh, in the South. Um, but uh, this book, uh, Reconsidering uh, Reagan, also talks about how during that campaign he talks about law and order, which of course is is uh, code language for anti-black uh, sentiments. Uh, he also invokes this uh, vile caricature of welfare queens, people of color who are bilking the welfare system and so forth. It's just, you know, which is a fantasy uh, for the most part, at least. And uh, so, you know, there is this sort of 
racist pattern behind the religious right, not only in its formation in defense of racial segregation, but also uh, moving toward uh, Reagan and then finally uh, toward uh, Donald Trump in 2016. Yeah. Now, just to quickly go back to Hillary Clinton, is there a particular or specific reason as to why the religious right wasn't well, I think, you know, people have studied this much more than I and, you know, come up with all sorts of, of, of things. But the religious right has just been, uh, has pilloried her from, uh, you know, from the 1992 campaign when her husband was running for uh, president for the first time uh, to the present. And uh, I, I think, you know, um, uh, sexism certainly is a big part of that. Uh, seeing her as this uh, ambitious woman and feeling uncomfortable with that. And some of her policies certainly uh, were interpreted and understood as being um, uh, not what they wanted, (laughs) you know, to put it in in those terms. So, yeah, that's been going on for years, for, for decades. You know, she was kind of the the witch. Uh, I remember one of the leaders of the religious right, Richard, Richard Land, who uh, said that uh, if, um, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said after the 2004 election that if John Kerry had been elected president in 2004, um, Hillary Clinton would be parking her broom at the Supreme Court. You know, mm-hmm. things like this have been going on for for years, and and I think in 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 light of that, I, many evangelicals, including members of my own family, who I've talked about this, said they just they couldn't imagine themselves ever voting for Hillary Clinton for for president. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting because if you look at the history, they're very uh, straightforward with their uh, belief or notion that there should be equal rights between men and women. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that, and that's been, you know, uh, the burden of a lot of my, my, my work and and throughout my career, at least last uh, 10, 20 years, my career is, uh, trying to, to say to evangelicals, wait a minute, you know, the, the, the positions and policies of the religious right, which have become virtually indistingu- indistinguishable from the far right precincts of the Republican Party, represent a wholesale abandonment of history and the, and the instincts of the evangelicalism going back to the 19th century. Uh, where evangelicals almost invariably stood with those on the margins of society. Now, I, I won't deny for a moment that there were uh, Southern uh, uh, theologians who defended slavery. But for the most part, you look at the, the, the trajectory of evangelical social activism coming out of the Second Great Awakening, uh, it was very much contrary to that. It was very much directed uh, toward uh, those on the margins of society. Uh, 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 public education, for example, I didn't mention that earlier. Uh, common schools, as they were known in the 19th century, were very much supported by evangelicals. In fact, many evangelicals were leaders in that common school movement. And they understood that specifically as a way for those on the margins of society, that is the children of those who were less affluent, to allow them to become upwardly mobile and to improve their lot. Uh, this was very much a, an evangelical uh, issue in the 19th century. And then you fast forward to 2016 and the, and the Trump administration, and you have a secretary of education who claims to be an evangelical, and I'm not 
you know, I, that's, that's not for me to decide. But uh, this is a person who has spent her entire adult life trying to undermine public education and uh, funnel taxpayer money into religious schools and, and private education. I mean, it's just an utter, uh, that's just one example, but there's just an utter uh, contradiction to what I consider to be the noble history and legacy of evangelical political activism going back into the 19th century. Yeah, and do you think there's a point at which we will see the religious left, if there is, been, is a religious left, take over? No. <laughs> I mean, not in my lifetime anyway. They won't take over. But uh, I, one of the things that's, that encouraged me about the, the 2020 election is that the religious left was was much more vocal than it had been in the past. Uh, you have people like Ron Sider, uh, who... Um, um, who I've admired for a very, very long time, who um, organized uh, a group called Evangelicals for Biden, I think it was, or something like that, okay. uh, and, and was very thoughtful in his, uh, his approach to, to that issue. Uh, people like Jim Wallace uh, at Sojourners have been fighting the good fight for a long time, Tony Campolo. There is a religious left. Shane Claiborne is another name uh, that's very important. Lisa Sharon Harper. Uh, these are all very important uh, figures. Problem is they don't have their own media empires behind them. <laughs> None of them does. Mm. And so um, they don't quite have the same amplification <laughs> in in the society that uh, that the religious right does. But nevertheless, I think they, um, the 2020 election uh, emboldened them uh, a, a bit to be more vocal about uh, their their understands, but will the religious left take over? Um, probably not. Yeah, and I'm not sure that's you know just in a larger picture. I, one of the things that I I, I talk about at <clears throat> various times uh, is that um, I think religion functions best from the margins of society and not in the councils of power. That is, once you begin to covet. Uh, um, Politi political influence, <clears throat> political power, I think you lose your prophetic voice. And I think the religious right is a great example of that. I mean, um, evangelical political activism uh, in the 19th century was very much coming from the margins of society, whereas the religious right wants to be part of the power structure. Mm -hmm. And uh, beginning in the, in the 1980 election, they were part of the power structure. But uh, in so doing, they they lost their prophetic voice. So the religious left, I think, <laughs> nobody would include, uh, nobody would accuse the religious left of being uh, politically influential. So they're still on the margins, and I think that's where they're most effective. Right. And last question, what do you think religion will, what role do, will religion play in this new presidency, in Biden's presidency? It's a really good question. Uh, I actually had a piece in the LA Times just a couple of days ago about this. and. Uh, that uh, about Joe Biden and, and how the Catholic bishops are now threatening to come after him because of his position on abortion and deny him access to the Holy Communion. And part of my argument was to try to suggest any moral equivalency between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, let alone to find in Trump's favor is just a moral universe that I can't even imagine, let alone wish to inhabit myself. Um, but Joe Biden is a, a, a lifelong devout Catholic. Uh, he's talked about his faith sustaining him during the very dark moments of his life when he lost his 
his wife and um, his, um, infant daughter uh, in an automobile accident back in 1972, and then losing his um, his son Bo to, to brain cancer in 2015. And he has uh, relied on the church, relied on his faith, I think, throughout his life. So I think it probably will play a, a role in his administration. I don't know exactly how, um, but I'm pleased to see that the Democrats nominated somebody who, whose faith is, is very important to him. And uh, of course, he won the election, and we'll see how it plays out over the next, uh, next four years. Thank you for listening to the Big Green Discoveries. This episode was made possible with the help of Dr. Balmer, who was kind enough to speak with me. His most recent book is Solemn Reverence, The Separation of Church and State in American Life, and it's also available on Audible. Lastly, I want to thank the University of Minnesota Law Library and their collection of the Scopes Trials. You can visit their page where you will find transcripts, speeches, articles, and pamphlets of the trial. And please, like and subscribe. It helps. Thank you.